Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow, and I'm so happy you're here. Before we get too far into today's episode, I will tell you that I am recording this over the 4th of July holiday in the evening, and you're going to hear fireworks in the background. To me, that is something super exciting because my Jack was born on the 4th of July and fireworks to us are a symbol of the celebration that we had the night he was born. And so I hope it brings you a little bit of happiness after the 4th of July holiday. Today, we're going to talk behavior. And I know behavior is something that everybody likes to talk about. Everybody likes more information about. What I'm going to talk about today is some really simple, commonly used behavior strategies. And the way that I've come up with this kind of list is because I oftentimes have to ask for an IEE, an independent educational evaluation, after a school does a functional behavioral assessment. I've done a couple of podcasts already on FBAs, and if you want to refer back to those before you listen to this one today, that might be helpful. But what we're really going to talk about is when a parent has to ask for an FBA because a child is having trouble behaviorally in school. Normally, this comes up because the teachers will say, Um, you know, something to the effect of, well, I just don't think that he's working very hard because he can't keep his behavior under control. Or he works when he wants to, um, but the rest of the time, um, you know, we're having a really hard time managing behaviors. And so I oftentimes start by looking at that functional behavioral assessment and I'll notice some insufficiencies or some errors or some Um, you know, something that I want to look at differently, and I'll ask for an IEE. But of course, a functional behavioral assessment or any kind of evaluation might take some time. And we don't want to leave a child in a classroom without proper behavior supports. And so what I do is we go into the meeting, and I oftentimes suggest that we do an IEE. But while we're waiting for the IEE, I would suggest a couple of behavioral strategies. And so I kind of came up with a list based on my own life, uh, my own training as a teacher and my life parenting my Jack and talking to my friends, what are some behavior strategies that work for you? And as I do that, I kind of keep this um, this running list. And so I'll go over the running list with the parents and I'll say, which one of these things works for you? And then we'll go to the school with a list of behavior strategies and say, while we're waiting on the results of the functional behavioral assessment or the IEE, why don't we see if we implement some of these strategies or one of these strategies or some combination and see if we can get things headed in the right direction while we're waiting? Because we certainly don't want a child in school that is completely unsupported. 
So here is a very incomprehensive list of some very simple behavior strategies, some very commonly used behavior strategies. Um, and this is in no particular order, and it is um, a little bit of a hodgepodge, probably a lot of things that you've already heard of, um, but here's how I talk about them in the school setting. So the first one was taught to me by a, um, a person that works at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And she actually taught this to me when she came to observe Jack when he was in kindergarten. And she said, I think that it would be really helpful if all of Jack's tasks were modified so that he was working only on the primary learning goal. So this, the, the strategy that I, I don't know what she calls it, but I just call it the primary learning goal strategy. And the way that I work on this, or the way that I describe it rather to a district is, I say, okay, so for every single task that you give a child, every assignment, every activity, you need to think, the teacher needs to think of what the primary learning goal is. So if there is a paper, for example, and maybe it's a kindergarten paper, and it asks the children to solve a single digit, digit addition problem, and then find the problems with the sum of eight, and then color all of those red, and then find the problems with the sum of nine, and color all of those green, and you know, this you've seen this kind of worksheet, right? So the question is, What's the primary learning goal here? And I think on a worksheet like that, the primary learning goal is probably single digit addition. But some children, particularly children with developmental delays, you know, my Jack has Down syndrome. And so if Jack saw that paper, he would see the math problem, but he would also see this coloring task um, that's a fine motor task. And he would also probably um, have an attention task because the paper sounds like it probably has a lot to do. And then there's the coordination of, um, you know, sitting in his chair and regulating his body for the math problem. And so all of that is going on in addition to just the primary learning goal of reading, or excuse me, of doing the math. And so what I encourage schools to do is to, for every assignment, every activity to think, okay, what do we just need to learn here? We just need to learn math. Great. And so Jack probably would have used manipulatives in order to do those single digit addition problems. And so Jack's aide could have gotten out the um, manipulatives so that he could do those single digit addition problems and allow him to do the math problems. That's the primary learning goal. Now, if he finishes ahead of everybody else and chooses to color or to do anything else with that paper, cool. That's gravy, that is extra, that's awesome. Maybe you could use the extra time to, to access some other behavior strategy or to access some other regulation strategy, um, You know, whether that's uh, heavy work or animal walks or something like that. So we use these kinds of 
um, we, we use this strategy to really modify the work, to simplify the work, and to make sure that we're doing the actual work that's tested instead of testing other things, like in this case, um, attention and fine motor and coloring and that kind of thing. So the primary learning goal is the focus. So simple, but so, so effective. Another thing that I think is super helpful is to look at the actual profile of the child. So um, my Jack and a lot of children with Down syndrome have a really strong visual profile. Um, and that's not true of every person with Down syndrome, um, but it is definitely true of my Jack. And so um, as a result of that, there are some strategies that are very helpful for children that have strong visual profiles. And one is kind of a negative, um, and that is that um, as a result of this, or, 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 you know, maybe who knows how the brain works, I'm sure somebody knows, but not because he has a strong visual profile, but Jack doesn't have a super strong auditory profile. And so oftentimes things that I say, he'll miss a word or two. And so one thing that I've had to explain in supporting Jack and supporting a lot of children that have Down syndrome or, and or strong visual profiles is give directions in the positive. So instead of saying, do not um, take that paper off of that child's desk, the best um, way to say that is leave the paper there or only touch your own paper so that you're getting the affirmative and you're getting all of the words. If I were to say, do not take that paper from that person, Jack might miss the word not or the word not, not might not register um, to him on that particular day in that particular setting. And what he actually interprets is, oh, I'm supposed to take that paper because all he hears is take paper. And so if you give an affirmative direction, that's oftentimes helpful, like hands to yourself, walk with your friends, sit in your seat, positive things. Another thing that's helpful for a child with a really strong visual profile is a visual schedule. And those visual schedules can um, involve any duration of tasks. So some children um, just need a visual schedule for the entire day. You know, we're gonna do math and then we're gonna do reading and we're gonna do circle time and, and that's enough. Some children need visual schedules that um, are broken down into individual tasks. So, you know, for each center during center time, there would be a visual schedule saying you're going to do this and then you're going to do this and then you're going to do this. Um, once those schedules are presented and the child understands the routines and that kind of thing, usually the need for the schedules themselves will kind of diminish and that support can be faded. Um, but you, but, but sometimes we need visual schedules for time periods that are two or three minutes long, sometimes for 30 or 45 minutes long, and sometimes we can get through an entire day with just one 
visual schedule. Of course, another idea for a visual schedule is kind of a task chunking um, schedule where we might have the numbers one, two, and three, and then we're marking down, um, you know, we're going to do three math problems and then we get a break, or we're going to do um, three papers and then we're going to be all finished. And so um, that would look like maybe a number one, and sometimes they're little Velcro things that you can move up to the top. Um, sometimes when I work with Jack still, um, particularly if we haven't worked together in a while because we've had a break or something, I will simply write down the numbers one, two, and three, and then we X them off. But somehow we are signifying that we're finished with task one, finished with task two, finished with task three, and then we will move on. So a visual schedule can be very helpful no matter what it looks like. There was a big firework. Another thing is checklists. Um, a lot of children do very well navigating all kinds of different um, environments, but they might need a checklist to do it. So maybe we need a checklist in the restroom. And if we had a checklist that would help to keep us on task so that we know that we um, you know, go potty and then we wash our hands and we get a paper towel, we put it in the garbage can and we walk out. Um, and that might be all that you need in order to curb that um, behavior that's happening in the restroom or something like that. Um, you could do checklists for morning arrival, for afternoon pickup, for lunchroom tasks, all kinds of different things. Of course, social stories work also, and um, this week I am going to um, post a video on my Instagram stories where I show you how I do a social story for Jack in um, a an app called Book Creator. And what I like to do is I like to take lots and lots of pictures of something that we're working on. So the, um, the book that I'm going to make this week is about golf because we have a goal of um, Jack playing nine holes of golf. And he has done seven holes, which is awesome. Um, but sometimes it's just really reinforcing to him to see himself succeeding, to see um, himself in these activities. And so I, the last time we played golf as a family, I made sure to take lots of pictures and I actually took some videos where um, his, my husband, he calls daddy-o. Um, so where his dad is explaining to him, um, you know, different shots and different clubs that he can use and that kind of thing. And what I'll do is I'll make a book that is about Jack and it's about Jack succeeding at playing golf. Um, and then, and I do it all on this book creator app and then he can read it himself. The, the app will actually read it to him um, and he can watch it before we play golf the next time. And that is extremely helpful. So we do those when we go to the dentist, for example, and lots of other places. So I like to make my social stories, um, more about him, but there's lots of different ways to make social stories as well. Um, then we can also include um, other kinds of visuals. So, you know, maybe it's a, um, a chart with pictures of a child instead of videos like the real social story, but, um, you know, a, a picture of the child 
um, sitting nicely at the table or um, sitting in their spot on the carpet. That's a really nice visual um, that a teacher can give to a child instead of um, continuing to say, sit right here, sit on your spot, here's your spot on the carpet, you know, all of those kinds of things. Sometimes that visual reminder is a really, um, a really good um, reminder for a child and a good prompt. I think now is a great time to take a little break. I'm going to meet you on the other side of this announcement about the Special Education and Advocacy Lab. I want to invite you to check out my Special Education and Advocacy Lab. I'm enrolling new students soon, and I think it might be just right for you. This online, on-demand training course is designed for parents and caregivers in special education. I made this nuts and bolts IEP 101 course for you because I've been in your position. A few years ago, I found myself needing more information about special education advocacy and laws. And even though I had been a teacher and I'm an attorney, I couldn't find the information. Head over to my website to check out more information about the Special Education and Advocacy Lab. I hope to see you there. Another behavior strategy that is commonly used in therapies and something that I find that schools don't do very often is linking work to preferred activities. And I oftentimes have to explain to teachers and school staff that children, particularly with developmental delays, grow up from the age of zero with therapists in their lives. And the way that therapists oftentimes work, particularly with kids that are young, is they'll just bring any kind of preferred toy. So it might be a Hot Wheels track or a ball popper or um, you know some kind of dinosaur with Play-Doh or something. And um, what they'll do is they will do a little bit of work and then you earn a little bit of time with the Play-Doh and the dinosaur or with the Hot Wheels track. Um, and so maybe you are saying words in speech therapy and you're going to say 50 words in that session, but every three words you take a second and put the car down the track. And then if you want the car to go down the track again, then we're going to say three more words. And we work that way so that we are kind of working for the opportunity to play with that preferred toy or to do the preferred activity. Um, and once kids reach elementary school aged, a lot of them are able to do pretty much before they are able to, before they need that reward. And so we might be able to write the entire alphabet before we get four or five minutes of blowing bubbles or something like that. Um, but those activities are enough to motivate the child um, to actually do that non-preferred task. And that's something that I have to explain and sometimes even model for schools. Um, and, and parents oftentimes think that that's happening in schools. And then when we go in and say, I don't know if you know about this strategy, but this has been really helpful in therapies, um, schools will report back and say, oh gosh, we tried that and that was so great. Um, you know, so thank you for giving this example. And it's funny because parents usually say, well, I thought they were already doing that. 
Um, of course, there's a token reward system that's really similar to that. Um, and so, you know, what we would do with the token reward system is we would allow a child to, you know, have some kind of preferred activity like blowing bubbles or playing with Play-Doh or something like that. Um, if they were to work for 15 or 30 minutes or something like that. Um, and we might do, you know, four stars along the way. What I oftentimes have to explain to parents is that most behaviorists, I think, um, would say that it's very important for children to actually earn the stars, particularly when the activity is, or when the reward system is first being introduced. And so you might need to do a reward just for sitting, or you know, a star just for sitting down in the chair, or um, a star for picking up your pencil. Oh, that's a great start. I like how you picked up your pencil and you give a star for that. Two weeks in, you, would, you probably aren't going to give a star just for picking up your pencil, but it's really important for children to earn those um, stars or the tokens in order to get the reward um, so that the, the um, so that it's reinforcing I suppose is probably the best best way to say it oh my goodness a big firework here so then we can talk about other um, kind of things to regulate a child oftentimes children are um, simply not regulated, and that might be from a sensory standpoint, it might be proprioceptive, but somehow, some way, neurologically or from a sensory profile, we just aren't regulated. And I think the biggest thing that I have to explain to schools is how children need scheduled movement breaks that are not conditioned on behavior. So a lot of times schools will want to take away recess, something that drives me absolutely berserk because a child isn't doing well. Well, recess is a great opportunity for a child to get some really good gross motor activity, to get maybe some proprioceptive input by jumping around or by um, swinging or spinning. Um, and so we certainly want to keep up with the recess routine. Um, but sometimes we need movement breaks that are available to a child and scheduled throughout the, um, throughout the day in order to re-regulate the child. Um, and this is really similar to how um, you might feel even if you are neurotypical when you just get up and take a walk in the middle of your work day or if you take a break and you go get lunch and you um, have to walk to your car and talk to a different person at the drive through window and that sort of thing. So just a, a movement break sometime is very, very helpful. Of course, that movement is even better if it is oftentimes, if it is super intentional. And there are programs that help children with um, recentering, with that mind-body connection. Um, and so we're talking about something that's very proactive. It might be yoga or um, something like that. And then, of course, breaks that are earned by way of a reward. So sometimes the reward could also be an additional break. And it's okay to give uh, movement breaks as rewards, of course, because a lot of children like to move. Um, but it's also super important to make sure that there are 
breaks that are built in that are not just rewards that you don't have to earn because um, if that's what we need in order to do okay in school, then that's what we are entitled to get. Um, and so, you know, any of these breaks might look like animal walks, like a crab walk or a bear walk or something like that. It might be jumping exercises. Um, Jack's teacher used to take him to run an errand every once in a while, and he would have to open all the big fire doors in the school. And when he was in preschool in particular, that was really heavy, but that gave him nice input and it was really um, good for his body and he would usually do pretty well after he had been on a walk like that. Lots of schools now have sensory paths in their hallways um, and those are lots of fun and help significantly. Um, of course, there are programs like what you can find on Go Noodle and um, there's lots of yoga programs on YouTube, like cosmic yoga, etc., And then sometimes there's stuff that we can do even just in our chair, like put a little wiggle seat in the chair or um, some kind of compression is um, not recommended as much anymore, but you know, sometimes a compression vest might work or a fidget, um, little footrest on the chair, even that can really help to um, help a child to get more regulated. Um, another thing that we do oftentimes is um, some specially designed instruction to help a child identify his or her emotions. I bought um, a program when Jack and I first started working together at home because of COVID. Um, and this was on Teachers Pay Teachers. It was probably just a few dollars. And it was a yoga program. And what I loved about it was at the beginning of every yoga session, we would talk about how we felt. And there was this nice little um, page where we could talk about if we were feeling angry or anxious or really happy or sad. And then when you flipped it over it, um, then you would do your yoga. And when you flipped over that first page, it would talk about how you felt after your yoga. Um, and that way we could really talk about what different emotions feel like and um, you know, how our yoga helped us to feel better or if it didn't help us to feel better, what we were going to try to do to feel more ready for school or to feel more happy or to try to relieve our anxieties or something like that. Um, and so sometimes we need to be more definitive and more um, specific about identifying our emotions, um, particularly as children age. That's a great self-advocacy skill that we want for children to, to learn. Um, and then the last thing I'll talk about is redirection. And the reason I talk about redirection is because um, I oftentimes have to really talk to schools about how we don't want to make children obstinate. Um, you know, it's kind of the pick your battles strategy. Um, and I haven't had to do this much for Jack in particular, but a lot of children with profiles similar to Jack's, Jack um, has Down syndrome and he has ADHD and he's pretty stubborn. Um, and, you know, if you say no to Jack enough times, he is going to get pretty darn obstinate. And so a better strategy is to redirect him. 
um, that might be a little tricky sometimes, particularly in school when a lot of tasks are non-preferred. But, you know, even just saying, oh, wow, look at the duck on this paper. Did you see this duck? Why don't we start off and, you know, we can color the duck yellow or something like that. And sometimes it's it's that easy. But maybe the, the redirection is something that does steer away from the academic task just for a second. Maybe the redirection is, you know what, let's go run an errand. I need somebody to run an errand for me. And sure, the child gets to escape from the activity, but nine times out of 10, it's if you can redirect and then get the child back on task, it's going to be more effective, more efficient. It's going to take less time than if you try to um, basically cram the activity down and say, no, you're going to do it. No, you can't play with the Play-Doh right now. You have to sit here and do this paper. Um, there are a lot of children that will have the opposite effect and will never actually do the paper because they just get obstinate. And so, you know, that kind of leads to the, the overarching um, recommendation in this podcast. And that is that you really advocate for your child from a place of what works for your child, what works for your family, what have your professionals told you, um, and doing it from a spot that is very, very child-centric. Um, and remember that I use these strategies as a lay person, not as a behaviorist, not as um, really a, a teacher. You know, I was certified in German education, so not as a teacher that is certified in teaching children with disabilities. Um, but I use this, um, these strategies, or I suggest these strategies while I'm waiting for that FBA with the hopes that an FBA or an IEE FBA will give us some more um, insight into some better strategies. These are just kind of stopgap strategies. And sure, the FBA might suggest them in the end, um, but they are some stopgap while we're waiting for that better information. So with that, I will leave you. I hope that you have a great week and that you recover from the holiday. I hope that the fireworks in the background give you a little bit of excitement um, as you continue on in your 4th of July week. And I will see you next week, same time, same place.